0: Church, over the month of August, we've done something called the Summer Speaker Series. and We've just invited different voices, different people uh, to come and, and share some fresh perspectives with us uh, from their different worlds and spheres of influence. And this morning, I'm excited to kind of wrap that series up with a man that many of you know and love dearly. And love a lot. And love a lot. Uh, they love him a lot. They love him a lot. He will take large gifts and offerings at the end of this That's service. Right. for his. Um, But Dan Serian has been a part of this church, an intricate part of this church for several years now. Uh, his sweet wife is our worship minister, Rebecca. I'm so, the
1: captain, and she's Tennille.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Donnie Marie. Sonny <laughs> Cher. Karen. Just be, care- just be careful. She, she gets a
0: mic sometimes, too, buddy. Just be careful, all right? But Dan, if, if you've been around this church for a long time, or even if you haven't, you, you'll quickly learn that he's got a passion for the word, he's got a passion for young people, he's got a passion for preaching. And we're excited to have him share this morning. He's one of the principals at Front Range Christian School. Uh, he focuses on the elementary age down there, and he's got an incredible message for us this morning. So help me welcome uh, Dan. Saric. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a while since I've been
1: behind the acrylic altar. It feels good to be home. Yes. <laughs> good. Keep laughing. It's going to need a lot of that today. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, Ryan Long. Speaking of Ryan, where is he? Is he in here today? Is he hiding? Ryan passed out candy before he preached. I've been studying Ryan's teaching technique, and um, actually, I took some notes and I decided to incorporate his teaching method on the first day of elementary school this year. So, as each child arrived, I gave them two Krispy Kreme donuts, a shot of espresso, and a puppy. <laughs> and it was like like a carnival. It was kids were loving school. It was wonderful until the sugar kind of wore off and the caffeine you know, went out of their system and the puppy peed on some child and it was traumatic. But I have been studying Ryan's teaching technique for some time. Uh, he has studied under some of the greats in the last three or four decades. Uh, Barney, Dora the Explorer, Spongebob. In educational circles, we call Ryan's teaching technique the pinata effect. It's all fun and games and children will do whatever you ask them to do until the candy runs out. So unlike Ryan today, I'm going to motivate you intrinsically, not by stimulating your dopamine centers and giving you a pleasure rush. But hopefully you will find pleasure in it as well. So anyway, that's all I have to say about that. I want you to watch a video. I want you to put yourself in the position of a pedestrian in this intersection, because you're about to witness a two-car accident. And I want you to observe what's happening in this video. I want you to observe what the cars look like. I want you to observe other details because you may be asked to testify at a trial where the accident details were actually contested. So, if we can, let's, uh, let's take a look at this. All right, now, I'm going to ask you to use your powers of recall. What color was the two vehicles involved? I hear black. How about the sedan? Gray. gray, gray. gray. Wow, you people are colorblind. Gray. I don't know about that. Um, whose fault was it? Sedan or the SUV? Ooh, interesting. We have a little discrepancy among us. What what color was the light for the sedan? Ooh, really got you on that one. Not really sure, are you? Okay. Well, a couple of things that I want to point out, I actually want to ask, is there one truth about what actually happened there? Is there one absolute truth, you put all of it together, is there one absolute truth as to what happened? Yes, there is, and you can look back on it now and you can see video footage, but if there is a dispute, if there is not a consensus on what really happened, then you get law enforcement involved, you get attorneys involved, a jury, a judge, you get insurance companies, everyone comes together to determine what is true about what took place at that accident. So eyewitnesses will be brought in, evidence will be examined. Now put yourself in the role of the victim. You're the one who was victimized. How important is truth to you as the victim? Is it important to you that the truth is known? That's really weak. Is it important to you that the truth is known? I would hope so. If you've ever been the victim of anything, you are going to demand that the truth be known. In fact, I haven't, because I'm a principal at an elementary school, um, and we have perfect children, they never get in trouble. When they come into my office, and they do, I have a, a little sign on my wall. It's the first part of it says this, when you're offended, you become a truth person. Now, everyone in this room has been on the receiving end of an offense. When you have been offended, you become very, very concerned about the truth. We're offended because somebody treated us in a way that was, we instinctively know we should not have been treated. We ought not have been treated that way. So we pursue the truth. The second part is this. When you're the offender, all of a sudden you become a grace person. Why? Because you don't want anybody to prosecute you to the full extent of the law you're going to bow before them and say, please show me mercy. Please do not prosecute me or persecute me. It's interesting how when we are the offended, that all of a sudden we demand truth. We demand to know what exactly happened. But it also begs the question, what is truth? Well, I don't know about you, but the answer to this question is of supreme importance. Since we live our lives under the expectation and presumption that we as well as others Live according to some truth, some universally recognized code of how we ought to live. We depend on that, even as we're driving, that somebody's going to obey what is absolutely true. What is truth? Truth is that which conforms to reality. Truth is that which is really real. Whether in the material world or the metaphysical world, by metaphysical I mean the world of the soul, the internal, the thoughts, logic, reason, existence. In fact, if someone goes mad, we often say that they have lost touch with reality. So there is a, they, have, they have lived in the shadow of truth. They no longer believe in the truth anymore. They have believed a lie or something else that has distorted the reality of what is true. It has to be true, though, for all people for all times. And in the physical world, we see this. Water freezes at 32 degrees. Two plus two equals four. And all rational people acknowledge that. Josh McDowell goes one step further, especially as it, goes, as it pertains to Jesus Christ. He says, truth is that which is the same as equal to the original. People often say, well, Jesus never. why didn't Jesus ever come right out and say that I am God? Well, he did, because of the nature of truth. When he said, I am the truth, he was saying, I am the same as or equal to the Father. You've seen me, you've seen him. I am the same as or equal to. I am ultimate reality. But here's what's interesting. We can have truth literally stare us right in the face and not recognize it because that actually happened. It happened to a man named Pontius Pilate. I want to take you to John 18. We'd see the exchange between Jesus and Pilate as Jesus was going through his pretrial. Let me read for you as you follow with me. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asked the most significant, profound question of all time. What is truth? Now, let's go back a little bit. Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king. Are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus immediately do? Well, in traditional rabbi form, he answers a question with a question. And he goes right to the level of Pilate's motives. Are you asking this on your own initiative, or are you asking this as a politician? In other words, were you truly seeking to know the answer to this? Are you truly seeking to understand truth, or were you simply trying to cover your backside as a local administrator, Roman politician? And it becomes evident that Pilate was doing the latter. So, here's a question that I have, why do people reject Jesus Christ as Lord and God, or? Reduce him to a good man, a moral teacher, perhaps even a prophet, but stop short of declaring him Lord and God. Why did Pilate? Was he living in a cave? Was he not reading the Jerusalem Times every day? Did he not know what this man claimed to be? Did did he not know that this man not only claimed it, but he backed it up by his life and his miracles? What had the Jewish leaders all worked up that they would bother Pilate with this poor itinerant rabbi and why would Pilate decide to wash his hands of him a man that he condemned to death simply for for claiming to be a king if I claim to be the president of the United States you wouldn't put me on trial and then execute me you would put me in a mental hospital you would think I'm crazy but that's not worthy of execution but yet Pilate washed his hands of him and walked away and so I suggest to you today that anyone who walks away from Jesus Christ, like Pilate, after reading about his life, his works, and his miracles, has only a few choices left, because you certainly can't ignore this man. And I think C.S. Lewis has probably the most profound statement, I've ever, one of the most profound I've ever read regarding who Jesus was. In Mere Christianity, he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, he would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Wow. This is somebody who's read the life of Jesus Christ and said, you've only got a couple of choices here. Whereas Josh McDowell used to say, the evidence of Jesus Christ and his life and teachings and his work demands a verdict. It demands a response. But to say he was just a good teacher? There's not, he didn't leave us open to that. So what did Pilate decide? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? He pretty much decided he was crazy. And he wanted as little crazy as possible in the Roman province of Judea, because if you know about the Roman civilization, they were all about law and order. So Pilate washed his hands of the whole affair. He hands Jesus over to his execution squad, and we know the rest of the story. But listen to what Jesus says next in his exchange with Pilate. He says for Jesus said for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. They that are on the side of truth listen to me. It's like the eyewitnesses of the auto accident who give testimony of what really happened. Jesus is saying, I am declaring to you what is absolutely real. I come from a kingdom that is not of this world. I bear witness of a realm that cannot be destroyed by death, and I come as the full expression of God. After declaring his lordship over an invisible kingdom that was not of this world, and certainly not something that could be destroyed by death, he said, they that are on the side of truth, listen to me. So at this point, he was not just establishing his existence, uh, the existence of truth, but that he was truth embodied. He was identical, the same as or equal to God the Father. He was the same as or equal to God. The truth. He meant that everything he said and did and the life he lived in the form of a man represented that which is in keeping with ultimate reality. If you want to pull back the curtain and see who's behind it, follow me, because everyone who's of the truth listens to me. And sadly and ironically, the closest the Pilate came that day to the truth was when he declared about Jesus that I find no fault in this man. It's this statement, statements like these by Jesus in his exchange with Pilate, that sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world. I came to testify to what is really real. But in Jesus' case, truth wasn't just a statement. It was him. He was asking people to not follow a series of propositions, but to literally to follow him. They that are on the side of truth, listen to me. Now, we could spend a lot of time, and I even said to Thomas earlier, maybe this should be a sermon series, but some of the game-changing quotes of Jesus Christ. And I have a few of them here for you. We know these quotes, but some of the most profound, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is an exclusive statement. There is no other way to the reality of the Father who is really real than through me. He didn't give any other way. I think St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, however you say it, in the third century, bishop of North a-, a North African church, he said, we love the truth when it enlightens us, but we hate it when it convicts us. When it starts to speak into the, into the darkness and the blindness of our soul, then we begin to shrink away from it. And if anyone was able to speak into the soul of men and women, it was Jesus Christ. So again, why do people reject Jesus Christ or reduce him to just a good moral teacher, Uh, perhaps even a prophet, but they fall short of declaring him Lord? Is it a matter of not enough information? Well, famous atheist, um, philosopher, um, British guy, Bertrand Russell, maybe you've heard of him. If you have had a philosophy class, if you are going to have a philosophy class, you will most likely hear about him. Can we get that slide up? There we go. He was once to ask, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? And he responded, I will tell him he did not give me enough evidence or enough information. So let's assume for the sake of argument that the Bible does contain an accurate, reliable, historical account of the life of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to make a case for that in a minute. So I want you college students and high school students to start taking notes, because you will be confronted with this at some point, if not already. We have recorded history testifying of the life of Jesus Christ, all that He said, all that He did, offering us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, His crucifixion, and most importantly, His resurrection. So what holds people back from believing in Him him, if we have this document that has revealed Him, that has provided all the information we need to know? Well, in my opinion, the last great hurdle to believing in Jesus Christ as Lord is the human soul's stubborn determination not to submit, not to be obedient, to declare anyone else Lord except God. So C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell were right. You can do what you want, you can do what you want with Jesus Christ, but ignoring him doesn't, is not an option. It's one thing to be a lover or seeker of truth. It's another altogether to submit to its demands. So let's go back to the topic of truth. Are we truth seekers at heart? We absolutely are truth seekers. We are made in the image of God. We are born with a truth-seeking antenna that's constantly sweeping the air to make sure that what is happening to us and what we do is actually according to truth. This is evidenced in the way we live our lives. Let's look at that, because I think it's a demand. We demand truth when it comes to relationships, when it comes to information, advertising, safety, health. But like Blaise Pascal said, Unfortunately, most people invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Truth today has become a matter of personal preference. It's, based, it's now on the level of opinion or what works. It's really common today to reject the idea that any one faith can be true or that they're all equally true, which is impossible, or that belief that something can be true for you but not for me. That is not how truth works. For instance, we demand truth in relationships. My spouse will never be unfaithful to me. That's a truth that I hold on to. In accounting, is what you have in the bank according to what, what, the, what you get in the statement, is that what's actually in the bank? And if it doesn't agree, do you do something about it? How about product labeling? Is the formula that I'm feeding my baby from a reputable company, does it contain the ingredients as it says on the packaging? What about the smoke detector? Do they work? Is it going to save your life when it really counts? What about advertising? Will I truly save 50% on car insurance if I switch to Geico? How about personal information? If you give your credit card information on an online shopping, Amazon, whatever it may be, is it going to be safe? Is it going to come back to you? Or are you going to have your identity stolen? So We demand truth in all these areas of life, but what happens when it comes to the spiritual realm? It, does, it seems to me that we pitch truth right out the window there's no longer a truth. There are many, many truths. Our worldview, what we believe about origins, our purpose, our view of God, and our hope beyond the grave, suddenly all views become equally valid. Many truths, but they're opposing truths, where something can be true for you but not for me, because it works for for me. I'm glad you're a Christian. I'm glad that works for you, but this works for me. This is my truth. So, Here's the options: If we abandon truth in Jesus Christ, that He is the way, the truth and the life, we come to the proverbial fork in the road, and there's only two ways really we can go. And the first one is this: tolerance. Why do I have an Oldsmobile up there? Well, it's an old expression. My wife said not to use this. But uh, you've heard the expression, this is, not, "This is not your father's Oldsmobile." Maybe I should say Buick. This is not. Tolerance is not our grandfather's or father's tolerance. It's not the same definition anymore. Tolerance, by definition, is putting up with something you believe to be false. Today, acceptance of all beliefs as equally valid as long as you don't claim that what you believe is exclusively true. There is no room for anyone to say, I have the truth. I'm not, I will be tolerant of you as far as you claim to be exclusively true in what you believe. So by today's definition, in the name of tolerance, we accept everything and reject nothing. It's like the Dead Sea. Water flows in from the Jordan, but it never gets expelled. We just let it all. It's all truth. It's all good. Works for you, good for you. I have a different truth. So it's led to the lumping of all beliefs into the same camp. Everyone basically believes the same thing. No worldview is better or more exclusive than another, because basically all worldviews contain some element of truth. It's just a matter of personal preference. But there's a big but here. Big but. The notion that all religions basically teach the same thing, which in some cases is love, that expression we have up here right out of Deuteronomy 6. But is that exclusive to Christianity? Love God, love others. Do other religions love each other, love their version of God, who they believe in? Yes. So see, we're all on common ground. We all basically believe the same thing. But is that true? If we believe that all religions teach the same thing, we have a gross misunderstanding of what world religions teach. All religions have some similar moral code, be kind, be decent to one another, but they, virtually, they disagree on virtually everything else, the things that matter, the nature of God, who Jesus Christ is, the nature of sin, the nature of man, salvation, heaven, hell, creation. Or we go down the path of sin or truth is all that, is, is what works. It's called the philosophy of pragmatism. It is a ends-justifies-the-means approach. For example, if lies work to accomplish the goals that I seek, it it works for me. That's my truth. But lies are still lies. Lies are not truth. So here's, I know this is profound, but here's where we're going to start out. Truth claims, I want you to get this. If you're writing stuff down, write this down. Truth claims are exclusive, narrow, and intolerant. To accept something is true means to reject something else. This is called in philosophy, in debate, it's called the law of non-contradiction. Maybe some of you have studied this in speech class. It is a fallacy of logic to accept that two truth statements which oppose each other can both be true. So we stretch the boundaries of tolerance when we proclaim that your truth is equally as valid as, and legitimate as my truth when they are polar opposites to one another. Somebody is wrong. Let me give you a perfect example of this. 1 Corinthians 15. Apostle Paul, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. In other words, we ought to just go home. This whole thing called church is worthless. This is just a feel good time. It just makes you feel better about yourself. There's no necessity for it because if he's dead, why follow a dead leader? Well, the Quran, reading right out of the Quran, And because of their saying, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary, Allah's messenger, they slew him not, nor crucified him, but it appeared so unto them. The the Quran says Jesus was not crucified. It only appeared so to them. Is that a game changer? Are are those two truths equal? That Christianity says we have a Savior who is resurrected, and the Quran says it only appeared that he was crucified. He was not. And what are the implications for 1.57 billion Muslims on the face of the earth? Because according to Jesus Christ, they are still in their sins. And how does that strike you on an emotional level? Polar opposites. Timothy Keller, in his amazing book, The Reason for God, he says, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is the game changer for us. So you have Muslims, one of the fastest growing religions in the world, competing with Christianity, and you have Christianity that are polar opposites, and people say, we should just all get along. We have the same basic belief system. We both believe in God, really. Well, Matthew 7, Jesus said there are only two gates. He talked about the narrowness of truth. There's only two gates, broad and narrow. A truth claimed by its very nature is narrow, exclusive, and intolerant. He said most people are going to go by the broad way. Very few people are going to find the truth. That may have been the, the source of ACDC's song, Highway to Hell. Who knows? Because the highway to hell is broad. It's a six-lane highway. Because there are those who just say, you know something? Nice guy, good teacher, moral man, not Lord, not God. And they still remain in their sins. The highway to hell is broad, and many are those who travel on it. Now, I want to make it clear that there can be opposing beliefs. You can have difference of of beliefs from someone else, but there cannot be logically opposing truths. More simply, all people may be equal, but not all truth claims are. And there's a difference between opinion, preference, and truth. They are not all the same thing. So let me try to go to the next logical step. Some of you might be thinking, none of this matters if the Bible isn't a reliable historical account of what actually took place in the first century. So, ready? We're going to do the reliability of the Bible 101. Okay, if you're into apologetics, I'm going to put a couple of bullets in the the clip for you, because we need to be armed. Because there are those who believe the Bible is just lumped in with a lot of other ancient, historical, outdated documents. But I want to show you how we know the Bible is reliable. Because I am so tired, and I've heard students say this all the time. How do you know the Bible is true? You know what the answer I I get more than any other time? Because God says it is. Oh my gosh. (laughs) In logic, we call that circular reasoning. How do we know the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it's true. How far is that going to go in your 101 philosophy class with your atheistic professor? He's going to think you're an idiot, and rightfully so. That's a fallacy of logic. It's like Hillary Clinton saying, you know that I I didn't scrub my servers clean because I told you I didn't scrub my servers clean. Well, according to the FBI and the Department of Justice, they're not buying it. So they're actually going after the truth of what actually happened. Well, the Bible can be proven both through external evidence and internal evidence. Okay, you ready? Okay, here we go. Archaeology. Archaeology. If you've done a study of biblical archaeology, there's even a magazine that you can subscribe to. Um, I'm just going to share a quote with you. This is from Israeli archaeologist, the late Dr. Nelson Gluck. He was one of the most reputable archaeologists that lived. Um, He said, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm a clear outline or an exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. So he said not only what we found attests to the people, places, and, and events and culture and history of the Bible, but also the Bible itself has led us to certain places that we would not have discovered otherwise. Just a few years ago, Herod's tomb was discovered on the side of this mountain called the Herodian, just near the Jordan River. And for years, they have been looking for Herod's tomb. They finally found it. It was fascinating. Now, talk about opposites. Remember, you, cannot have, you can have opposite beliefs, but you cannot have opposite truths. Let's talk about the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is based on an account of these civilizations that lived in North America um, centuries ago. Does any of that contain any historical archaeological truth? Well, the Smithsonian Institute chimed in on this in 1996 and again in 1998, and it wrote a letter to the Mormon church, and it said, they believe the Book of Mormon to be a religious document but not a scientific guide, and furthermore, it has found no archaeological evidence to support the book's claims none now i took a group of students from my school to the mormon temple over on university in c470 when i was teaching world religions and you're not allowed to go into the temple because you're not mormon but they have some of these young missionaries and many of them have maybe come to your door and the one they had a script that they were following and then they finally gave us a very very few minutes to ask questions and i set my students up and i said if you want to throw them off ask them Has any of the reputable non-Mormon archaeological societies, National Geographic, Smithsonian, ever found any evidence that the cultures and the people and the times and the weaponry and all that in the Book of Mormon has ever been found? Because it hasn't. And they said, well, the answer that the Mormon missionaries gave, it's at BYU. It's in their science archaeology department. Brigham Young University. Brigham Young was one of the founders of Mormonism. Outside of that, nothing. Who's right? the Book of Mormon right? There's no archeological archeolo- evidence for any of it. But why do people believe it? When I went to Israel back in uh, 2008, I went to the actual pool of Siloam, which and Jesus, Jesus was talking to a man who was blind and he, he, he put cakes of mud on his eyes. that uh, He spit on the ground he, and he sent them there. And they just found that no more than six or seven years ago. That's the actual edge of the pool. They finally found the pool of Siloam. It's an actual place. The next slide is of the Pilate Stone. How do we know Pontius Pilate lived? Well, here's one evidence. This is near an amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima. I've been there, and I've seen this, and they, it has the inscription of – it was a dedication to the emperor Tiberius, and it was from Pontius Pilate, which, and they called him the prefect of Judea. He was not just some made-up man. He actually lived. He was actually the prefect of Judea. He actually stood in front of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the second proof, the internal or the external, extra-biblical writers. People often say there's no reference to Jesus Christ outside of the Bible. Is that true? Absolutely not. Take a look. If you just want a starter list right here, if I made it many tinier, you wouldn't be able to see it. But there are more. And these people all lived within 100, 150 years of Jesus Christ, and they all made references to Him. So don't let anyone ever tell you that there is no reference to Jesus Christ outside of the New Testament. There are plenty of them. Number three, manuscript evidence. Now, this is very small. You don't have time to look at it, but when you talk about ancient documents, like you see Homer up there, who we read in in school, we read from Homer, the Iliad, How many people just wonder whether or not the Iliad was actually the same document that was written by Homer? Well, you have to ask yourself in ancient literature, how many manuscripts exist today? And of those manuscripts, what's the time between the original writing, because none of them exist anymore because they all disintegrated, and the first known copies of those originals? How do they disagree? Because you're going to have copies, in the the case of the New Testament, you look at the arrows down there, the distance in time between the actual writings and the complete manuscript of all of them is about 250 years. We have fragments that go back as early as 130 A.D. But if you look at the number of manuscripts, there's 25,000 of them. In other words, the Bible was copied over and over and over again, and so some parchments or papyrus were sent to Egypt, some were sent to Turkey, some were sent to Asia, some were sent to Europe. And when you get copies of the Gospel of John from all these different cultural centers and all these different ge- geographical centers and you put them side by side, do they match? And the answer is yes, they do. They, they agree with one another. In fact, somebody did a study of this and they looked at how accurate, well, let's go back a second. The Dead Sea Scrolls, these were discovered in the late 1940s and they've been excavating, they excavated for several years. What that did was it closed, they found a complete scroll of Isaiah and that closed the gap between the original writing of Isaiah and the existing manuscript copy by a thousand years. And it was almost an exact duplicate of Isaiah with just a few minor typos, nothing that was significant. It was almost exactly the same. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were another confirmation that what we have today is what Isaiah wrote. How about the accuracy of the Bible? Let's look at this. Amongst the manuscript copies that we possess of the New Testament— Scholars have discovered that there are some 150,000 differences, but 99% of those differences hold no significance whatsoever. Usually, it's simply a missing letter in a word. Some may involve the absence of one or more insignificant words, but it does not change the meaning of the text. It's not significant. We have a 99% pure text that is thousands and thousands of years old. How about the the internal evidence? Just real quick, cohesiveness of the Bible, 66 books. Three continents, three languages, 1,500-year span in which it was written by 44 authors. How unified is the Bible? On Sunday mornings, I'm teaching through the book of Revelation, and one of the things that we keep going back to is how the book of Revelation is almost like a bookend where Genesis is the other bookend, and everything in between points ahead to what Revelation is revealing. There is incredible cohesiveness there. There's, There's incredible unity of the Scriptures. And then we also have the second internal evidence, which is prophecy. This is just a short list of the prophecies that were made of Jesus Christ about his birth, his tribe, how many pieces of silver he betrayed for, that he would, he would go into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And these are just the ones that—these have all been fulfilled literally, but there are some that have not been fulfilled yet. We have incredible prophecies written hundreds of years before the event in very good detail that are now—that have all been fulfilled. Is this just a man-made book, and was this just a normal man? And going back to the accident, how many gospel writers are there? There's four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have four people standing on four different corners of that intersection. They're all observing the accident. They all write differently from a different view, a different perspective. I'd rather have four witnesses than one, but it came from different perspectives, when Muhammad received his vision from the angel Gabriel, which soon, which, which not soon, after that became the Quran, how many people were there to, were there to witness that? None. How many years after he actually trans, communicated what he saw by the angel did, he, did the Quran come into existence? 200. 200 years of oral transmission, of just telling stories, telling stories that were finally written down. How accurate could that be? Who witnessed it? Nobody. Who witnessed Joseph Smith getting the, getting the tablets from the angel Moroni? nobody. We have witnesses. So to review, to embrace the notion that all religions are equally valid is a fallacy of logic and simply is not, it's not true. They cannot teach opposites. Christianity is not the same as Islam. It is not the same as Judaism. It is not the same as Mormonism. It is not the same as Jehovah's Witnesses or Buddhism or Baha'i. It is not. It, we are absolutely polar opposites. Somebody's wrong. That leads us to the second fork, There's the fork of tolerance, everybody's right, nobody's wrong. It's not appropriate for you to say that's not right. Or we go to skepticism. Skepticism is a position that nothing can be known for certain outside of personal experience or observation. There is no way to know the truth. It generally expresses itself in uh, a term called agnosticism. Agnosticism simply says, um, I can't know. It is not possible to know that there's something beyond this life. Ravi Zacharias said it beautifully in his book on atheism. He said, Never before has skepticism had such a brilliant halo around its head. There is a certain glory about not knowing. But here's the problem with skepticism. Try defining truth without reference to God or an absolute and see how quickly all such definitions fall apart. Because the moment we ponder the essence of truth, we're brought face to face with the requirement of a true north of an absolute mind. And since nature and matter does not self-organize and does not communicate morality, which is the biggest fallacy of Darwinism, if matter, if, if, if we are the result of time, chance, chemicals, and no supervision, where did the mind come in? Where did the consciousness come in? Where did morality come in? If it's survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog, dog, where did kindness come from? Where did compassion come from? Where did grace come from? I'm supposed to want to dominate you. I want to thin out the herd so there's more food for me. It doesn't make any sense. So, where does this sense of oughtness come from? If we seem to have a sense of universal, absolute, or truth that we all are seeking for and understand, where does the consciousness come from? The mind. Wouldn't it make sense that it comes from a mind itself? From a, if there are laws, that there is a lawgiver, that there's an ultimate authority. So, where does this leave us? Well, as I wrap this up, Uh, My conclusion is this, and if you're a believer today, I want to challenge you with two things. Number one, do you truly believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be? Or are you just following the party line because this is the way you were raised and and you're in church right now? Because, folks, we are living in very difficult times as Christians. There's a level of hostility that is growing towards Christianity that is on the rise, even in our so-called tolerant culture, which is a myth. And we have Christians dying all over the face of the earth, especially in Muslim-controlled countries for their faith. And I ask myself all the time, if, I was, if somebody put a gun to my head and asked me to either renounce my faith in Christ or call Him Lord, depending on my decision, they would either let me live or kill me, what would I declare? Do I truly believe He, he has my soul? Do I truly believe He is who He says He is? If I believe in Him, I will never die. That's the first question. Number two, what is the one question you hope an atheist an agnostic a Muslim coworker never asks you. Are you ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you? Are you prepared to give a reasonable, logical argument, not to say the Bible's true because it says it's true, for the hope that's within you? If you're in high school, in college, if you haven't already, what's gonna happen when your atheist professor or teacher challenges your faith in front of your classmates? and call you out. I'm afraid that too many of us are taking a knife to a gunfight. We're not prepared. A lot of this material is new to some of you. We have the opportunity to be people of not only the book, but also books that teach us and reinforce to us that we have a faith that is based in reason, in logic, in evidence. Are you prepared? If you are a struggler, if you are a skeptic, if you have embraced the myth that all religions are true. And have not accepted the exclusive, narrow, and yes, intolerant claims of Jesus Christ, I challenge you to look at two things. I challenge you to look at the nature of truth itself by definition, and I challenge you to do some study on the evidence of Jesus Christ. If the Bible is a reliable historical document which accurately testifies to the extraordinary life of Jesus Christ, that He is either Lord, liar, or or lunatic, then you only have a few choices. What what are you going to do? What is your decision? And as a final footnote, which is sad, a sad footnote on his life, Pontius Pilate apparently never came to the knowledge of the truth because Eusebius, who was a Roman historian, records that Pilate committed suicide sometime during the reign of Emperor Caligula. Um, a sad ending to a man who st- sat in judgment of truth. Let it walk away. Let it be taken, into, into, uh, taken and executed. May that, that not be your epitaph or mine. We have some work to do. I don't want West Bowles to be a mile wide and an inch thick, theologically. We've got to be thinkers. We have got the mind that God has given us. Let's study the Word of God. Let's study the truths, the proofs of our faith, because, folks, it's heating up, and it's not going to be just the Sunday school answers anymore. It's not going to work. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the mind you have given me. Thank you for the mind of my friends here. Um, we are truth seekers. We love it. We need it. It's what makes our world work. I pray that we will see you as the way, the truth, the life, that you are the truth. There is no other. And Father, help us to be sensitive to those who have opposite beliefs, who have believed a lie where there's no evidence for their faith. May we be given words to speak when those times come, but may we do it with kindness and gentleness and respect. Help us to be people of the book and people of research. Investigate, and be prepared to give an, an, an answer for the hope that's within us with kindness and gentleness. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon.